Welcome to the Anything But Typical podcast, and we have the Anything But Typical Liz Ward on here, courtesy of, this is a shout out to you, Tim Gallant, <laughs> who, who loves listening to our podcast, and thank you for connecting us to Liz Ward, and we found out just before we went on air that um, she knows a couple other people that have been on the Anything But, Ty but Typical podcast, including Matt Anderson of BGWCPA and Jason Tuttle. So if you have not listened to their stories on the Anything But Typical podcast, please do, because they're both Anything But Typical people, as you are as well, all the listeners. So, And your fingerprints prove it, just in case you were doubting that. So Liz... As we get into your story, before we dive into that, you and your family, you, you said that you loved going hiking and biking and that sort of thing, but you guys are up in Brevard going to one of your favorite hiking places. You're pulling into the parking lot. You and the kids, everybody gets out of the car. You're getting ready to go and hit the trails and somebody oversees you guys and they go, hey, that's the amazing Liz Ward. And they start talking about you, but they don't realize you can overhear everything that they are saying about you. What would you like somebody to be saying about you, Liz? Oh, man. Um, I guess in my heart of hearts, I hope that they would be saying um, she is just really nice and cares a lot about other people and um, is known for doing the right thing even when that's really difficult, um, if it's the right thing for other people. Um, I don't know. I hope, I hope that's what <laughs> I would hear them saying. <laughs> yeah, that's good. So Liz, before we get into questions, I want to give the listeners that don't know you a quick preview. So Liz is the founder of Give Impact Advisory Services. And part of what we're going to be talking about, hence the name Give Impact, is going to be impacting communities, things like that. And she has a plethora of volunteer and board experience with places such as Charity Water, North Carolina Women's Affordable Housing Network, and so many more. So I want to go back to start this off early on in your career. You began the career in commercial real estate at Wells Fargo, straight out of your undergrad. What led you to pursuing a career related to just real estate in general? Well, I will actually back that up that I started in banking right out of school. Um, I had an opportunity to um, do a rotational program in leadership development, and it wasn't specifically on the lending side. I got to rotate through different areas of the bank, and I absolutely loved it. Um, and I was ending the program right when um, the 2008 recession was hitting. Good timing. Um and it was, I remember the exact day that I was in there and they announced that Wells Fargo or Wachovia was being sold to Citibank and the president of our division, which was over uh, retail and mortgage banking came and like stood on top of my desk and turned, we were on an old trading floor, turned on the TV above it. And we were all just jaw dropped watching this TV and this news that it just hit. Mm. Um, and thankfully, um, as it turned out, uh, Wells Fargo purchased Wachovia instead, um, which ended up being a great fit. And a friend of mine who had actually made the decision to go directly into commercial real estate um, was in one of their teams and she had joined directly to Wells Fargo and, and they needed to grow their team. And she was like, Liz, you love talking to people 
and you love numbers. So I don't know if you know this, but you would, you would do great in commercial real estate. I knew nothing about commercial real estate. Um, I really didn't know anything about the industry, how it functioned. Um, but she was like, these are two qualities that not everybody has, but you know, we would love for you to come and join our team, just have coffee with my boss and check this out. And so, um, I had coffee with Randy Hughes, who shout out to him. If he ever listens to this was hands down, one of the best people I've ever worked for, um, incredible leader, incredible servant. Um, I've learned so much from him. Um, and he just was a great mentor. And so I, um, once I got into it, I was still thankfully very young in my career. Um, absolutely loved the people in real estate. Um, they're just really cool people who are creative, want to build things, want to help build cool communities where people gather. And so that was the start. It's an interesting way to kind of back around into it, right? Somebody calls you up and says, hey, we think you'd be a good fit in this. Um Talk about what you learned at Wells that you were able to take forward, moving forward in your career. What were some of those early lessons in your career? Oh, yeah, it was. Well, it was a big I'm really glad that I had that foundation when I started because. Wells and Wachovia, both being a large corporation, I was able to see the structure and particularly the the rotational program I went through we were, I I reported directly up to the CFO. And so we were at the very top looking down at all the different lines of businesses and it helped me see how complex things are. I mean, we were, I was, I had um, exposure to banking regulations and just the intense reporting. Um, We were helping at one point um, the bank uh, expand internationally and we were um, aggregating all of this data from all the different lines of businesses across the company in different countries. And it just helped me realize how complex things are. Um, and I love, I loved that. And so it was, it was nice to start there and then go from there to a small nonprofit, (laughs) which technically was a large nonprofit. They had about 30, 35 employees. Um, it was big, big cultural shift. Um, and it was, it was great to be able to see some of the organizational lessons, the training that we were offered in the corporate setting. And so I take that forward with me today, um, thinking about some of the, the processes and procedures that help a large organization actually keep things moving forward. But on the flip side, you didn't ask me this question, but this is where I'm going next is nonprofit we were just invited to be creative and we didn't have all this like regulation and reporting and thing that was going to stop us from doing our job. We were invited to say, Hey, like, let's go serve this mission. And then we'll just go find the money that we need to do in order to do our mission. And it was a total change of perspective. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And it was a little bit uh, of a, of a shift to go from, all these rules and boundaries and borders to this new area where that, I mean, sure there's, there's expectations. We have to report out to a board and show progress towards our goals, but it was completely different operating environment. And I don't know if maybe that awoken some or awakened some of my uh, inner entrepreneur that I didn't know that I had. (laughs) um, So that nonprofit you're talking about, is that the Charlotte Mecklenburg housing partnership? So 
Mm-hmm. That's perfect. It's going right where where I wanted. And you saying we didn't ask the question. This is your platform, right? You can take us wherever you want. <laughs> um, but what you were talking about there of the being invited to be creative, you saw those things once you were in there. But what was the the reason for you to leave a corporate America type setting to go to a nonprofit in the first place? Yeah. Well, I will say so. I had started so I, I after my friend introduced me to her boss I took the job offer to go join her team and it was an interesting time to be in commercial real estate lending because there was very little new construction happening so we were construction lenders who were really just working through a lot of assets that were troubled the perm market um the perm financing just wasn't there and so we were extending a lot of loans working with really great developers in Charlotte who all stood by their loans um, that we had made, but we had to work through some things. We saw linens and things go bankrupt. Um, I learned so much about legal documents and leases and the intricacies of what is the underlying value of real estate, but I hadn't seen new transactions. And so I was hungry to learn and to grow and to kind of catch up with some of my older counterparts who had 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 that transaction volume. And UNCC announced that they had a master's in real estate program. My boss at the time was sitting on their board and came back to the office after a meeting when they had announced this and just told everybody, hey guys, like there, there's going to be this master's program and some of you guys might be interested. And I had already been looking at different MBA programs because I just was hungry to go back and learn. Um, And so I ended up applying for the program and in the very first class uh, that UNCC had for their master's in real estate program. And in my very first semester read about affordable housing in a textbook. I had no idea there was industry out there primarily made of uh, tax credit funded deals that just used creative financing to produce rental units or homeownership units that were lower than market rate uh, priced. They were the, the incomes and the rents were restricted for people in our community that were working hard. And for me, um, it struck a chord. My mom was a CMS teacher her whole career. My parents divorced when I was in sixth grade. And so for the balance of middle school and most of high school, I was in a single parent household And I saw how hard my mom was working sometimes, you know, her day job. And then she was an exercise instructor at the Y and she was tutoring on the side and she was doing all this stuff to to support me and my sister. And I just felt connected by that. And I was like, well, I know how to underwrite multifamily. I've been underwriting multifamily. Maybe I could go and take what I've learned and take my personal experience and go help add value for a local real estate developer who is trying to increase the production of affordable housing. And so um, actually I take that back. I, my initial thought was I'm going to join their board (laughs) because I thought I was going to be a banker forever. So yeah, scratch that. I thought I was going to be a banker forever when I joined this program, uh, my master's program. And um, I sat down and had a couple of meetings with them and they let me shadow some projects they were working on. And after that, uh, I thought we were sitting down to have a conversation about me trying to join their board and um, who ended up becoming my next boss, Fred Dodson, um, was like, hey, would you would you leave banking and consider joining our team? And um, after that, it became a discernment process 
um, where I prayed. I really like, I was scared of change. That was my first major job change in my career. And I was terrified. Um, I thought that I was going to be a banker forever and I was going to have this long career and it was going to mean safety and security, which in hindsight, like being a banker forever does not mean safety and security. Um, and I was scared. And so, um, and I was going to make this change, go do something meaningful, but I was going to make a lot less money than, um, than I was making at the bank and my income potential was going to go down, but I felt called. And so I spent a lot of time mm. in prayer and one day it just hit me like every song I listened to on the radio, every page I opened, everything was saying, I support you. Like God, I, God was calling me to do something and I was supported and that it was okay to make the change. And when I finally talked to my boss about it, he was like, this is great. He was like, we are going to miss you, but you are never going to look back and go do this. And it was like, you can always come back and be a banker, but, but go, go on and go forth and you're going to, you're going to do great. And so I was really grateful for the support that I had at that time um, to venture out and try something that was meaningful to me. There's so much of your story that resonates with me on many fronts, but one, I, I love the fact that you gave a shout out to Randy Hughes, a great boss. Great bosses and great mentors are key. And every entrepreneur that we've had on here has called out the importance of other people that have impacted their lives positive in a positive manner. So first of all, thank you for doing that. Secondly, I think <laughs> this boss that said, you know, you're gonna you're not gonna look back. It's interesting to me because some entrepreneurs and many are kind of throw caution to the wind when it comes to uh, risk. They have a higher risk tolerance. So what you've described would be probably a high S, high C on the uh, risk tolerance on the disc profile, but even though you are more extroverted. So probably high I, probably high C, S, somewhere in that. Uh-huh. But you are you it seems like you were being called and you're running to something and you weren't running from something and there's a huge difference and so i think that's really cool um i i I do have a question so this entrepreneurial world that you've now transitioned into that and we can talk more about the nonprofit world where you were at but this entrepreneurial world that you went from i like stability i'm gonna be here forever sounds good to the wild wild west of entrepreneurship which as you know is is kind of a wild ride at times did you ever have ideas or longings as a child or even a young adult of entrepreneurship or was that just a foreign concept no i had no i had um dreams of leadership in the sense that I wanted to be president. <laughs> that ah. was my dream when I was little. I was like, I'm going to be the first female president. Um, and I'm really disappointed that someone hasn't beat me to it. Um, and I am not saying that I'm going to run for presidency one day for the record. This um, is it. This is your launching party. This is my launching <laughs> guide, maybe. Um, 
but that's what I wanted to be. I was like, I, I want to lead and I want to do good. Like I want to do good for other people. And for some reason in my head, I thought being president of the United States was, was the thing. And, but my dad, um, my dad had a, um, and I'm sorry, I'm saying I'm a lot. Um, that's okay. My dad had experience in entrepreneurship and I did not view it as positive. So I would say not only did I not want to be an entrepreneur, I vehemently did not want to be an entrepreneur. Interesting. Uh, yeah. And part of the reason why I was so pulled to affordable housing is because I had a lot of financial instability growing up, mm-hmm. which also led to my view of risk. Mm-hmm. But over the years, it's, it's, it's so funny because I, I mean, I tell everybody, I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. My best friend, Sammy says, well, Liz, you were always going to be an entrepreneur, but I just didn't see it. She was like, you were always going to do that. I take calculated risks. I take risks all throughout my life, but they are very calculated. And me starting this business, there was no part of it that said, I want to work for myself. It was, I have a skill that I can provide and I want to go do this thing and it doesn't exist. And I prayed about it and I, again, felt called. I felt pulled and I was terrified. And I will be honest, I mean, I was going through therapy, (laughs) trying to help me through this. And because I was like, I don't want to leave. I love this nonprofit I work for. I love what they're doing. Um, But I just don't feel like I'm in the right place. I don't feel Mm -hmm. like I'm where I'm supposed to be. Mm. And I felt that energy shift. And so I went through this long, like nine month discernment process Mm. and where I was going through counseling, I was talking to, um, you know, pastors at my church. I was talking to friends. I was just talking with lots of people. And then it just got clear message. This is what I'm supposed to do. And so I called my boss, Fred, and said, I am supposed to do this thing. And he's like, I believe in you. And if you feel like you're supposed to go do that, you should go and do it. And you will always have a place here if you need to come back. And that was the second time I had gotten that message and I felt so supported and I Mm. am forever grateful to the support that I also received from the housing partnership when I decided to make this change. Um, It meant a lot to me, but I, it was a, I believed I was supposed to do this. And if I, if I led with that, that the rest would follow and it has. Well, it speaks volumes too that the two times you made a major transition that you could have that conversation with a boss and the boss is immediately supportive. That's not the most common thing in the world, especially in business. (laughs) So the fact that you did that two different times and both times you were supported speaks volumes of their character and of yours. So as we start to transition the conversation into the business, let's take a step back and give the listeners uh, just a basic explanation of what give impact is. Okay. So the best way I can think to describe this is, is what caused me to do this. Um, Right before I left, I was working on several affordable housing deals that were public-private partnerships. So we were bringing in resources from the private community, and we were combining them with public dollars. 
And there were new people who were coming to the table, like namely the the first deal I'm thinking of was a um, a large corporation that had a a nonprofit foundation they were working with that um, that had some land. Then there was a large uh, local private company, uh, Marsh, that owned some land. Um, and um, sorry, and then the other company was Movement Mortgage. And then Covenant Presbyterian had uh, two million dollars that. They wanted to put to work out in the community for affordable housing. And I was thankful I was in a position where I, I, I came across all these people and I was helping them navigate. They were not familiar with the affordable housing world. That was not their business. But they said, hey, we have resources we want to put to work. Can you help us? And so by partnering with the organization I was working for, we helped guide them to implementing those resources and built a really beautiful, meaningful project and I realized there was nobody out in the community that was available to help these people who were saying, I have resources, I want to help, but affordable housing is very complicated. It is a complex financial instrument. Uh, the deal the deal structures are complex. The implications of the residents and who you're serving, and it's there's a whole spectrum. I mean, when people say affordable housing, often they think one thing, but it's not just one thing. Affordable housing means, can I afford to live in this home and not spend more than 30% of my income on my housing? So there's, I mean, it it spans all the way from um, people who, who really need public assistance to people who are working really hard and can't afford more than $600 a month on housing because they're making $30,000, $40,000 a year. I mean, there's up to people who are making $60,000 a year or more. And still, Charlotte is particularly housing burdened. So I felt called to step out and make myself available for people who were trying to figure out how to how to um, get their capital or their resources or connect with partners who are aligned with their vision. And so um, at the core of what we do, we we work with companies and groups who have capital, have resources and say, I want to make a difference in Charlotte. Um, and it's starting to expand into other areas of North and South Carolina. Um, and, but I need help. I need help figuring this out. Um, and so we, we sit down with them, we have an impact session and we kind of help them fine tune what it is that they're trying to do with their resources and where they're trying to make their biggest impact. And then we help them connect them with opportunities and support them as as they implement their their programming or their capital. Um, and on top of that, we 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 do a lot. We also do uh, real estate development uh, consulting with uh, market rate developers of affordable housing, trying to help them uh, learn to and develop tools to incorporate affordable housing into their otherwise just pure market rate deals. And um, then we can we can come to the table with all sorts of different real estate. If real estate's at the core, then we can be there. If you're trying to do something good for the community and something with affordable housing, that's also um, in our wheelhouse. And so we can just bring forward our my 15 years of experience in complex real estate development to help make sure that the development plans are aligned with the with the vision of impact. So I think it's things. really cool. Oh, oh go ahead. Go ahead, bud. Um, Two of the things that I wanted to touch on. The first one, you were talking about Charlotte being in a housing burden. So can you elaborate more on that? And then 
is that is that common in metro areas in general? Is that more of a just isolated incident here in Charlotte because of how quickly it's growing? Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's everywhere right now. And it, it's it's uh, mostly in the major metro areas where I would say that the impact is the biggest, but it's happening nationwide because of a couple of factors. I would say the first one is demand for rental housing is up and production has not kept pace with the amount of housing production. And on the flip side, the, the existing supply that we have has is being diminished. So while we're we're struggling to keep pace with the um, the production of housing, the existing supply that we have either is being demolished for to make way for new cool mixed use developments or new high market rate deals. Um, they are also that because the demand is so strong, folks can buy older complexes and renovate them and make a good return. There, it's just all about the capital markets. There is, um, there's a lot of capital out there flowing towards uh, these deals because there's high return mar- market rate rental and it's it's putting pressure on uh, rental rates. And so I actually, I've got, a, I've got some data here that I can share um, in just a minute, but I, I should have thought to have it pulled up. But also from a home ownership standpoint in, we took data that was as of, um, I believe it was May. And if you take the median home price in Charlotte, it requires about $116,000 a year of income in order to qualify to buy the median home price in Charlotte. And over 37% of our population makes less than $37,000 a year. Wow! So there's a huge portion of our community that is just really struggling and unfortunately, North Carolina doesn't have what I would say a robust set of legislative tools to help local municipalities create the, the tools and the program that they need in order to encourage mixed income development or even to support full-on affordable housing um, type development. So there's um, uh, some other states have done a much better job of um, creating tools um, or letting their municipalities make their own decisions about what tools they need for their own um, for their own communities. But in, in North Carolina, our legislation has not given us the right to develop those own tools. Um, so that's, that's personally a change I would love to see made so that each municipality can make a decision as, as to what's right for its community, particularly so we can protect the business needs um, because it, it will trickle into that. If we can't afford to bring in the people that we need to run our businesses, they're going to start moving away and our talent pool is going to shrink. Um, So it's a broader economic issue of why it matters to everybody. I just think it's really cool that you got such wonderful formal training in a big organization. You, You cut your teeth and stuff that a lot of times this is going to sound too general, but a lot of times in nonprofits, you've got big hearted people that never were drawn into corporate America. So they didn't have that training ground, if you will. And there's 
tremendous training that can happen, especially if you've got good bosses and it's very clear you did and you had the aptitude, but to be able to take that technical expertise with your big heart and kind of fuse those things together to meet a really big need. I mean, one of the, the most famous entrepreneurs in Charlotte is Hugh McCall. And Hugh McCall, that is one of his biggest passion zones still to this day mm-hmm. of, you know, improving the the lives of others and affordable housing is, is a big passion zone of his. So I think that's a really cool thing. And I know Casey Crawford with Movement Mortgage mm-hmm. is doing a lot as well, too. Way yep. subterranean, like he doesn't bring attention to himself, but he's doing a lot. Um, so I love the ripple making people that you're you're working to actually make a difference in this city that we love oh my gosh you know i just thought back to your first question and i got goosebumps when i was thinking about this if i were getting out of the car in brevard and i overheard someone say that like i was in the same impact category of casey crawford or hugh mccall i would hit the ground um (laughs) i admire them both so much and i've i've spent time with casey and i just Um, I really admire him and I admire his organization and I was grateful for his partnership on that deal that I was telling you about that we, um, he was integral to coming to the table. And so was Hugh in that deal because Hugh goes to covenant Presbyterian, which is where I'm a member. It's a crazy story. That's I'll save that for another day. Crazy story. I was brand new member when I received that RFP and I was terrified to respond. Um, and, um, God just worked it all out. It was great. And it's an awesome project, but I admire both of them so much. And I'm grateful for the leadership that they have provided to this community. Yeah. Yeah. They, I got to work under McCall at Nations Bank and Bank of America. And when I came back seven years ago, I saw him having dinner or lunch with another former uh, Bank of America person and then somebody else that I didn't know but we it was just five of us in this restaurant one of his favorite haunts and after the meal was done I went up to him afterwards and I said hey I don't know if you remember me or not and he's like yeah he did um, but I just said I want to thank you for the corporate humility that you've had because you could have put Bank of America names on every one of these towers because Bank of America people fill many of those towers in uptown Charlotte, but you didn't. And you said, I want to make Charlotte a great place, a world-class city. That's a great place to raise a family and grow a business. And you've, you've really done a lot there. And he said, but we're not there yet. (laughs) Not for every, not for everyone. That is how how he said it. It's the key. That is the key. And that's just where my brain was going is it's not that for everybody. Right. It is for me. And I'm grateful because I'm I'm Charlotte native, born and raised multiple generations back. I, I love this city so much, but I want to see it be that for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So well, keep making ripples, Liz. You're doing it. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> Liz, you mentioned earlier when when these places have resources and don't know what to do with it, you sit down and you have an, an impact meeting, I think you called it. Mm-hmm. Give us a peek inside. What does that look like? Right. Because we have a lot of small to mid-sized business leaders that listen to this. So if somebody is coming to you and says, we have this, we don't know where to go. What does that impact meeting look like for them? Yeah. Um, so 
first, we always try to get, get to know everybody. So understand like, how did, how did you get to the point where you're having this conversation? Um, and so for them to know me and my team, I've got two wonderful, amazing people on my team that I am so grateful for. So shout, I'm going to use this moment to shout out to Maya Bullock and to Rang Vakaria. Um, I honestly couldn't do, Give Impact couldn't do what it does without their their hands and their hearts um, behind everything that we do. But we we sit down as a team, we get to know our clients, and we walk them through the spectrum of housing opportunity and meaning the full spectrum from you know there's there's homeless shelters, there's transitional housing, there's there's rental housing that is just subsidized, there's workforce housing that um, has even higher uh, rental and income limits. Um, and then there's for sale products. And so there's a whole spectrum of actual product. And then we go through talking about, well, who do you want to serve? Do you have a heart for a, a special population? Like, is do you care about families with children? Do you care about um, older individuals in our community who are 55 up that's we call those we label that as senior housing um do you care about people with disabilities or veterans or um you know municipal workers teachers um, is there some something specific that you care about we talk about geography um in terms of do you want to work put your resources to work in increasing access to housing in high opportunity areas that are typically also high barrier because of the cost of land or the cost of development? Uh, do you want to do your work in neighborhoods that are experiencing gentrification and help avoid displacement? Do you want to do areas that have really have seen no investment and try and go in and, and help lift up the neighborhood? There's lots of so many different categories. Um, and sometimes people are motivated to do things near their home base, where their office is or where they live. Um, or they're they're more concerned about suburbs. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a robust conversation, so we can understand what is. Are you trying to lift people up generationally through creating equity through home ownership, um, or are you concerned more about um, stability now by creating stable housing now through through rental? you can allow them to spend more of their disposable and in, disposable income on things like health education and stabilize their life. Um, and there's, that's the thing is like, I've told people it's okay for you to pick one thing. It's okay for you to pick one aspect. You don't have to care about the whole thing. You can care about the whole thing, but you don't have to be so broad because someone else will care about one of those other things. Um, so it's okay. If like your heart is refugees like let's focus there. Let's let's you know define exactly what you can do and go make something powerful. Um, we're helping a client um, who I absolutely love working with, and it's so funny because they are really shy. I don't want to say shy, but they don't care about using their name or the publicity associated with this. But they're going out and buying land in high opportunity areas specifically so that families with children will have access to education, um, mixed economic environments, transportation, access to jobs. So that's what we're doing. We're helping them go by land. Um, and it's really, really meaningful work. That is so cool. And it's so needed. So thank you. Yeah, it's, 
it's amazing. I mean, we're truly, I am humbled all the time at the opportunities that, that keep presenting themselves. And, but this, this city um, has a lot of wonderful things going on. And my hope is that at some point it becomes a, a little bit more integrated, not, not in the way that like, I, all these businesses are doing wonderful things, but there's sometimes a lack of information flow. Um, so people don't realize there's something going on that someone else is already doing. And um, that's a, that's a difficult problem to solve that hopefully technology can help us with at some point. <laughs> so you just hit a, a, a passion zone of mine that I, I've observed in the nonprofit world and, and I'll go into the technology world in particular. I went to Duke Energy a long time ago and said, man, you know, we have all these nonprofits that are trying to do the same thing, but they're not interconnected. They need somebody to kind of help galvanize them together because so many people have great intentions, and but then they start a nonprofit and they have duplicitous needs, but they have kind of built their own little ecosystem and own survivability thing that then it becomes really difficult because, oh, mm. you're messing with my cheese, you know, or whatever. But so I'm curious as a founder of a nonprofit, how do you navigate and deal with that with other nonprofits that have common cause to not be seen as infr infringing on each other's turf, if you will? Yeah. Yep. Um, okay, I've got a couple things. And one is a is a good point for clarification because um people that we obviously we we get this confusion a lot is that Give Impact is technically not a nonprofit. Um, even though we are a org, um, that can be a little misleading. We are socially minded business, um, and so that's why we are eligible for the org. Um, but part of the reason I've in my head and in my heart. I function like a nonprofit because everything I do with the money that I generate in this business goes back to either hiring, reinvesting in the company, or we have a, we have a donor advised fund that we put things out so that we can grant back out into the community. And um, so in my mind, but we pay taxes. And part of the reason was I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to, I wasn't sure where all of this was going to go. And I didn't want to spend my time worried about an EIN or, you know, the 501c3 application and uh, managing a board and all that stuff and detract me from my mission or from doing what I knew in my gut was the right thing to do. Um, and so for multiple reasons, um, we've done that. We've leveraged, we have a lot of clients who are nonprofits and partners who are, are nonprofits. And so we leverage those partnerships in order to do some of our work so that grants or the different things like that can be facilitated. Um, but people ask me that all the time of, are you worried about competition or infringing? And I try and tell people that I would love to be put out of business if affordable housing wasn't a thing. If it wasn't needed, I would love to be put out of business and go work on something else. Um, truly, if it gets solved, I mean, I will be very happy to take my years of life lessons and go go do some, you know, I'd go do something else to help other people. Um, 
but and there is some among in the nonprofit world there is some competition um i but i think most of it just comes there's so many people that want to help each other and it just they need the right um connection point to be connected to under others understand what they're doing um but in that world there is competition because uh, of grant dollars i'm not looking for grant dollars i generate my income from uh from providing services to my clients through our impact sessions and hourly fees for advisory work. And um, so I don't compete in that way um, with the grant pools. Um, I mean, I do when we're working on individual real estate projects that maybe are nonprofit owned, we compete in grant pools or other funding pools against others. But I'm like, you just put, you have to just put your best foot forward and do what you know is right. And if somebody else gets picked, over your project, then you, you just audible and <laughs> figure something else out. <laughs> so well, I don't know if that hundred percent answered your question, but. Yeah, no, it helps. And it, you know, I made the same assumption seeing.org and I'm like, Oh, it, it's a nonprofit. Right. So. It is on my FAQ page though. I will say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One well, of the I questions I, I had, and we can go into it now was, how do you balance creating impact while still running a sustainable and profitable business? Oh, team, two, two answers, teams and technology and prayer. Um, I said three things. Um, (laughs) I, so Maya on my team was my first employee. She, I had no idea I was going to hire anybody. I mean, I really, when I started this business, I just thought I was going to be a solo consultant. Just, I'm going to put myself out into the world, see what happens. And um, two months into my business, um, Maya sent me a LinkedIn message. She had been connected to me through uh, my friend, Rachel Krentz, who is also in the real estate industry. Who And Rachel had mentored her while she was getting her master's of urban design at UNCC. And so she sent me a message and said, I'm, you know, I've heard, heard about your business. I'm really interested in learning more. Could we do like a 30 minute zoom? Ben, just like you said, you were doing earlier just to reach out to people. And so we got on a 30 minute zoom and turned into an hour and 15 minutes. And we just connected on a real deep personal level. Um, you, sometimes you, when you meet people and you're like, I've, I've known you before. I don't know. We just, we had this deep connection immediately and, She's like, I'd love to come work for you. I believe in what you're doing and I would love to be part of your team. And I was like, I have no idea about being an employer. I really don't, but I do need help. I mean, I was two months in and I was spending so much time on checking emails and scheduling calls and monthly billing and all the stuff that goes on with running your own business while I was trying to figure out the systems I needed to put in place. And so she started 10 hours a week for the first month. And then I was like, Ooh, I need you more. And she went to 24 hours a week. And then two months in, she was like, I'd like to come work for you full time. And that was terrifying uh, because like, okay, I'll be her sole source of income. And I'm only six months into launching my business and she's going to be relying on me. I'm, she's going to be relying on me to make her rent to, to put food on her table and, 
that was, that was a little scary. Um, so what did I do? Went back into therapy and, um, <laughs> I prayed about it. I, I got the it. sign that uh, Liz, you're supposed to go for it. You are just supposed to do it. I knew we were so deeply connected and she believed in my business. And, um, and so I worked with my accountant, uh, James Pollock, and we found the right accounting system and payroll system and, um, got things set up. And April 1st of 2021, she was officially like full on. And I converted to an S corp and we were both on salary and it was a big deal. And, mm-hmm. um, but she has been transformational to my ability to reach more clients and also to just enjoy the amount of work, what I do. I always felt like, I was like, I'm not supposed to do this alone. I don't want to do this alone. Um, but I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know if I was supposed to have a business partner or just work collaboratively with people. But, uh, when I met her, I knew this, this was somebody who was going to help me enjoy the walk. So our intent, like and internally as a culture is we don't want to just work nine to five or whatever hours we work to do work. We want to, this to be an experience. Like this is all about the journey. So we want to create a place, a, co- a company culture where we are supported, where we are encouraged to grow, where we can be authentic. We can come in and say, I'm having a bad day. I am, I'm struggling with something and it's okay. It's okay if you're not on all the time and if you're not having your best day and that we are here to support each other and that when we do that, we're able to better go out and do our job. And so we, Maya came on that April and then Tarang also didn't know I was going to be hiring another person, but we met, I met him through UNCC and he I was just kind of like unofficially mentoring him and he was doing interviews. He just graduated from his master's of science and real estate program. And he was doing interviews. I was like, well, while you're doing that, why don't you just come do an internship with me for five weeks? I've got so much work. I can use somebody who's got Excel skills and, you know, would love to teach you. And we just got so much done in those five weeks that we just kept going with like an elongated internship that just like ended up becoming like full-time salaried. I was like, well, I have a system. I could just add you. And then, you know, just added them to the system. And once you have systems in place, it does make it easier to scale. And then we launched 401k in the fall, which was like super exciting. And then in January we launched healthcare and it's just like, had these big milestones, but having systems in place um, and people who believe in what you're doing and can add has tremendously helped me be able to do the things I need to do in my personal life and focus on. So I use Wednesdays. I feel, I just talked a lot. Can I keep talking? I've got, I guess I am. I guess I am on a podcast. Okay. So here's the other secret other than technology and people boundaries. um, This was really hard for me to overcome in the beginning because one of my best friends is a pediatrician. She works four days a week and every other weekend, that's her schedule. And I noticed that I was feeling like, I don't want to say jealous, but like a little envious that she had one day each week to do whatever she needed to do in her personal life without the kids home, 
to stay on top of things. And this was before COVID happened. Um, but I was like, wow, I was like, that's really great. Like, I just feel like I am working all day, every day on these complex deals and my brain is being wrung out like a wet sponge. And I don't have as much left at the end of the day that I would like to have for my family. Um, and so when I started this, I was like, I need to put in better boundaries in place or some kind of function in place to allow me to, to have more energy at home to, to make sure that I'm in balance. And so we set up no meeting Wednesdays. I do not schedule meetings on Wednesdays. And that is the day that I use for running the company, for running payroll, for doing administrative stuff, um, for kind of looking at um, whatever I need to do and just no meetings, no back-to-back conversations where I immediately have to go Mm -hmm. do something. I can catch up on work. I can, I can do a load of laundry. I can go for a walk. Um, I do, I do lunches and coffee meetings with people on Wednesdays a lot. Um, And that's just joyful for me to connect with people, but setting that boundary was really hard in the beginning because I had people asking for meetings on Wednesdays and I felt like I'm available because I don't have anything on my calendar, Mm -hmm. but I really like, is it, is it urgent? Do I need to do that? And it took a lot of practice and a lot of encouragement from Maya being my caretaker and my calendar blocker to say, Liz, no, you are not available. It can wait. And I found after time that if I just don't say I'm available, that they'll figure out another time. And I don't have to explain that I don't take meetings on Wednesdays. Although most of my clients know I don't take meetings on Wednesdays, unless it's urgent. I will. Absolutely. Boundaries are meant to be movable if you need them. Um, And so if there's something urgent, time sensitive, I absolutely will schedule something on Wednesdays. Or if I'm traveling a bunch, I'll, I'll work on Wednesday instead of, um, or shift things, but you know, you flex it, but setting those personal boundaries helps me tremendously to keep things in balance. So there's so much to unpack. Um, I, <laughs> one of the things that, that I was curious about getting ready for this uh, podcast was the name give impact. It has nothing in the name about the like affordable housing or anything like that. And I don't know if that's on purpose because the vision is to end up going into other areas of impact, but I wanted to ask about that. What's your, what is the vision for give impact? Yeah. Um, Well, so I'll say that five years before I started give impact, I dreamt about give impact Um, Mm. and it wasn't housing specific. It was about connecting people with making the difference that they want to make and it being more than just um, more than just transactional, but something that's like changes people. Like if you've ever people who have gotten into the habit of giving, like there's something you get from that. Right. And I wanted to make it easier for people. And I realized, especially too, once I had kids that like before, before my son was born, my husband and I were very active and engaged in deciding how do we volunteer? How do we give away our resources? And then all of a sudden you have a little human you have to take care of. And all that extra free time you thought you had is poof out the window and got very limited, you know, extra time in my 
sphere where I can allocate to those times. I needed something to help me make it easier. And in my heart of hearts, that's where I hope to have influence at some point um, is in the broader spectrum. And we are already seeing some shifts of, we're working on a project right now where it's not housing focused. It's on equity. It's on reusing a church to benefit the community and bringing in operators and services and a vision that can transform. Um, and it's really exciting. And so that's where, you know, give impact the, the seed was planted. And so when I was like, maybe I should name it something else. I don't have anything in my signature that says housing specific other than on my LinkedIn. And sometimes I think about that. I think about that a lot. And I just don't feel like I'm meant to be specific. I, I, the intent is, to, it's like when you think of giving, you a lot of people think I'm giving money, I'm giving resources, I'm giving time. I want them to think about how I'm giving impact. How am I making a difference with whatever it is that I'm giving? How am I making an impact on someone else's life? And so that's where give impact really comes from. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to grow into, but it's it's funny. I really have no growth plans. Is that weird to say as an entrepreneur? I am. I am. Most most entrepreneurs do the opposite, where they only make plans and never execute. So you're you're doing the opposite. (laughs) You're making things happen. You're changing and impacting people on a daily basis. I do six months strategic planning to make sure that me and my employees are protected. And that I can, it's not just about that. It's about meeting the needs and expectations of my clients. I want to make sure that we are not over capacity or under capacity. And I want to make sure always that we leave enough room for the unexpected things that will come and that will morph into something more meaningful. Meaning like, like if someone were to come and say, Liz, we really need your team to help us with this thing. Like I always want to leave room for us to be able to pivot into into that and so i really don't do more than six months out and i do so much based on feel does it feel right do we i know i say energy a lot like that is something we think about a lot does it feel right like do we feel like we're doing the right thing are we needed here are we in alignment with the people that we're working with um and i think that there's a lot to that what's funny is you're an atypical entrepreneur, but every entrepreneur is atypical. So let's just call a spade a spade. So you're, you're a typical, atypical entrepreneur. Well, if you talk to anybody who um, is in the housing space that knows me, they would also say that I'm atypical in the sense that, like, I don't think with inside the box. And sometimes that's a good thing. And sometimes that's a bad thing. Um, I once had somebody at the state level I was, I was poking and prodding him. We were funny. We had a good relationship. And um, I was asking him like, I really want this rule to change, to, to be something else, to do this thing. And he goes, why can't you just figure out how to do things within the box? I'm like, <laughs> because the box doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's not doing what I want it to do. So I'm going to change it. Sometimes it needs to be changed. changed. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's, that's one of my signatures is... <laughs> Not normal. So I'm curious, are you part of a round table or is your therapist the person that helps you read the label because they're outside the jar? Oh, that's a great question. Um, 
No, I'm not part of a formal roundtable, although I'm actually going to one tonight. So I might be becoming one or being a part of a group tonight um, that I was just invited to called K-Suite. Um, and I'm excited to explore that and meet some new people. Um, I have an incredible support system. And as you can probably tell from this, I am not shy. Um, and so, and I'm super social. So I just, I met people all over the place and I just have coffee and text with people. And I learn from people in all different industries and walks of life and age and gender and background. And, um, and I think that's, it's important because I, especially like for me, I live, I have my own personal values and I know how I lead my life and my faith and the fact that I'm, I live with Christian values is important to me, but I in no way, shape or form want that to be exclusively who I'm spending time with. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not. And, um, and I think that's really important that we surround ourselves with people who are different, have believed different things, have experienced different things. Um, because we're all a product of our lived experience and we all have room to grow. And so really just crave, um, crave the company of other people in their perspective. But I have thought about that a lot. Like, do I, should I get like an, an unformal, like advisory board to like, tell me like, am I doing a good job? I, like, where can I improve, um, on running the business? But I don't, I don't have that formal, formal support system, but I do have really great other uh, consulting colleagues and small business colleagues who have, have been able to give me great advice. I think that's the point, the point though, is you, you find somebody outside of your own jar that you trust that has expertise, whether it's formal or not, I don't think matters as much, but having somebody outside the jar with expertise that cares that you trust that's a winning combination. I also think that a best practice that I've seen that you have talked about today is you've done a little test drive through your internship program with your most recent hire, but also with Maya, where each of you got to kind of try before you bought like a test drive mm -hmm. of each other. Cause I think it's really important. Not everybody has that luxury but man it can solve a lot of heartache mm -hmm. if you can do that and so i think that's extremely wise uh, i love your your spunk i love your creativity <laughs> no wonder you didn't fit in corporate america <laughs> you're just getting <laughs> squashed <laughs> so Liz, but, I, yeah but the last thing I'll say there before we move on is internships. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Like the try before you buy. That's, I mean, it has been great. And I will also say the, as an employer or for the other entrepreneurs out there who are thinking about making that jump is someone gave me the advice that, you know, when you make a hiring decision, don't think of it, it has to be forever. Like it's okay if like something needs to change or, and I, str I struggled with that because I, I never want to hire somebody with, without knowing that I can support them or what that future is. Cause I take that really seriously. Like wh what you put on your resume and how long you're somewhere like that, that it has a yeah. long-term ramifications for people's careers. And um, so I didn't take that, those decisions lightly, but from my psyche, I also knew I needed to give myself an out 
knowing that I'm going to try this thing and it's okay if it isn't perfect and it's okay if I need to shift or more for something um, because I'm, I'm a perpetually recovering perfectionist is what I call it. That it's knowing getting out of that perfection mindset that it, it doesn't have to mm-hmm. be perfect. Um, and that's a challenge sometimes. Yeah. So I probably have 15 more questions, but we'll, we'll just have you on for a part two. This has been an amazing conversation. Um, for listeners that want to learn more, uh, go to giveimpact.org or you can connect with Liz and we'll put uh, links in the show note, but you can connect with her on LinkedIn at Liz H Ward on LinkedIn as well. Any final thoughts, anything else that you want to add here at the end, Liz? Oh, I just, I want to tell people that, um, you know, believe in yourself and trust your gut. Um, I mean, you have to make good measured decisions, but never ignore your gut. If your gut is telling you something, um, take the time to pause and listen to it. Um, If something's out of balance or out of whack, you may not get an immediate answer as to what the solution is, what, what change you need to make. But if you feel wonky, if you feel funky, if you feel like just unsettled, that means something needs to change and it's time to pause and reflect and think. And um, I'm just really grateful for taking the leap. And when I felt that pull and what, what I have been able to experience in the last two years, I can't imagine missing out on that. And if I had been too scared to, to listen to that call, I would have missed out on all of this. And so I'm just really grateful for it. And I'm grateful for the journey of, of learning to increase in listening to those pulls when something feels Mm. off. Um, So I just want to encourage people to pay attention to that. Um, And I'm grateful for the time. So thank you guys so much for having me.